Hey everybody, we're back with another commission podcast. Holy moly, when's the last time we did that? 1973. Huntsville, Alabama for the That's true. Rocket City yeah. Nerd Gun. It's Bless. been a while. We apologize. We've been we've been swamped and behind on content. So, um this was a community commission where a bunch of different bald move fans get together. They bought shares to commission uh to fund the the commission of this podcast. It is for uh shit, the 1970 64. 64? Yeah, it's Holy fucking shit. early. 64 Stanley Kubrick film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Quit Worrying and Love Learn to Love the Bomb. Something like that. Something like that. It's a really <laughs> long subtitle. Yeah. Uh, this, this was commissioned by Breaking Bad Fest uh, Ginny. Ginny from Breaking Bad Fan Fest fame, I should say. Nice. Uh, Juline uh, Man- Manoj. Flash Gordon, Anthony, Leap Lizard, Hero Protagonist 2002. Uh, I think your Hero Protagonist 2018. <laughs> just, just you know, you don't have to rest on your laurels, man. Uh, Tengudu, Don M, Zach Z, Alex R, or Sean R, and Alex K. Uh, let us talk briefly about our history of this film. Jim, is this the first time you've seen Doctor Strangelove? <laughs> no, 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 no. How many times have you seen it? Uh Probably like five times. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've only seen it one time before through my infamous tour of the AFI Top 100. Uh, yeah. I can't remember at what point I saw this movie, but I was 22, 23, 24, somewhere in that phase, and uh, and I saw it, and I immediately could not believe how funny it was and how relevant it was, and I haven't seen it in about 15 years and I watched it for the first time again uh, and was freshly amazed at how great it looked, how well acted it was, how tightly written it was, uh, this sharp, razor sharp and pitch black social satire and comedy mm-hmm. and just how well it, it, it holds up and works and is more relevant than ever. What's what's your relationship with the film? Yeah, I, I don't remember the first time I saw it. Maybe when I was like 19 now, so what what um, makes a nineteen year old just sit down and watch a uh, black and white? I, I went through Stanley a similar Kubrick. phase of like I want to see like the, the great, good stuff, right? The good stuff, yeah. And Stanley Kubrick's name was high on that list, and so this being one of his more famous works, um, it was one of the first Kubrick films I checked out. It was probably The Shining, two thousand one, and then this. My first film I saw of his was Spartacus. Wow, uh, I've never seen Spartacus. At least I don't think I have, unless it was some bastardized TV version of it. I would like to see it again because, again, I haven't seen it since that AFI kick. And yeah. it's I think it's one of the more non-Kubrickian of the Kubrick. Although this is pretty non-Kubrickian, too. It is. Yeah, you can tell he definitely had a co-writer on this. If he never wrote this movie, I would not. I would say I would I would be fooled in thinking Stanley Kubrick doesn't have a funny bone in his body. Well, it's interesting because from what I've read, he didn't have much to do with the comedy of it. So he was oh, really? he was writing the script, and early on he started realizing, man, there's some really like dark, funny... Like He started to see some humorous things in it, and yeah. so he didn't try to set out to write a funny script. He brought in um, Terry no. Southern. Yeah, he was... Uh, the way I heard it, he was hired to adapt this uh, this book called Red Alert... Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's about, like, an accidental war- nuclear war with the Soviet and how, like, frighteningly possible it was with the technology. And, and, and as he was reading all these different doomsday scenarios, there is a certain type of uh-huh. – you, you wouldn't think of it, but the humor almost organically emerges. And his attempts to remove that 
was making the film very watered down. So he's like, well, fuck it. We'll just, we'll just make it a black comedy. Yeah, so I guess he brought in this Terry Southern guy who had written some comic novels before mm. that he had appreciated. Um, and he and Terry Southern set about to make it a satire, which I think they wholly succeeded in. It's one of the best satires I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, man. I, uh, I cannot say enough good things about this this fucking film. Um where do we where do we where do we want to begin? Um uh, I want to begin at the very first screen. Okay. Is this is this thing about like um essentially like an audience warning, something that Kubrick wanted in there or is it something that he was forced to put in there? Cuz it felt to me like it was an addendum tacked on to say please don't don't get too riled up about this stuff. I felt like it makes the satire funnier. Yeah. Where it, there's something even funnier, especially the more you know about the production, where like how exhaustive the research he did into Cold War era technology and strategy yeah. and game theory and, and game theory yeah. and mutual sure destruction, how like he boned up on that more. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to say he's the, the world's foremost expert. <laughs> sure, he certainly yeah. knew more than 99% of the world's population on he it. He was an intelligent and thorough man. And hanging so. this card saying the U.S. Air Force is assured that nothing can happen. And then he essentially gives a pretty straightforward account of what could happen and what yeah. has almost happened on a few handful of occasions in human history. Uh, I think it's it's like... I don't know. It's it's funny. It's funny. That was probably like the it, number one shocking thing to me is how tightly plotted this thing is and how none of it feels implausible. It's almost like that card to me serves as like an FBI agent. Like if he would show up at yeah. points in a movie and look at you and say, this isn't funny. Don't laugh. <laughs> right. It makes it even funnier. Gotcha. Like yeah. like humor in a funeral or at a church is even more like this. This like the fact that the government denies it's possible yeah. makes it even but, makes it even more possible because I feel like that's the other thing is if you're not willing to admit the weaknesses of your approach and your theory, yep. then you're almost doomed to commit them. Yeah. And that's very much what this whole thing feels like to me is the, the paranoia that gets you to develop backup plans yeah. and these safeguards is actually the very thing that could bring about the disaster you're trying to avert. Right. And like what kind of like, what must it be like to be – because they do war games. I don't know if they still do them, but they used to do war games to kind of simulate things like this and find these human and technical weaknesses. But I bet there was a lot of grim fucking humor at situ where, like, where you're just theoretically contemplating the death – mega deaths. Like there's this right. binder that yeah. – uh, um, George C. Scott got where he's got like world targets and mega deaths. Mm -hmm. And that mega death term was a, a term coined by uh, a nuclear strategist of the day. Where he, you know, he, man, I read so much about this, 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 the background of this, and I, and I don't know all, huh. everyone's particular names, but he's like, people would give him like shit for like, how can you sit here and talk about things like mega deaths and think about the end of the world and like all the stuff? And he's like, his response was like, well, someone's got to, because mm -hmm. this is the world we live in. If you don't take stuff like this seriously, then what you know what, what what the hell if you don't actually think about this and model it and talk into grim realities of millions and billions of dead then you yeah. know aren't you just walking blindly down the 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 garden path to that event yeah. eventuality whistling past your grave like yeah that kind of thing the grave of all mankind right i mean it's kind of a mind like 
it's kind of a minor miracle that we're what 70 years into the nuclear age and we haven't snuffed out I yeah mean, we've no, come I, really close on several occasions it's funny because i just listened to dan carlin's cold war podcast yes uh which was what was that i, the, I mean dan carlin's always what was that insightful something armageddon no 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 that's count i'm thinking the world war one one yeah no it was it was partially like coming off the back of world war ii and leading into the cold war uh-huh. i don't remember the name of it but it was an interesting account of like exactly that dealing with this new this new ultimate powerful weapon and the kinds of the the scale that you're talking about um and how that changes the very concept of war mm-hmm. uh oh the destroyer of worlds that's what it's called yes yes uh that was a great great episode of his yeah. um so it it's really like they're they're of a piece here one is yeah. deeply silly Mm-hmm. Um, but but in the way that you know satire is best satire is, which right. makes you kind of kind of jostles you out of your typical mode of thinking, or slaps mm-hmm. you in the face with ideas that you wouldn't have considered outside of the comedy context. Mm-hmm. But when they're presented in comedy, you can sort of stand back and say, "Well, yes, this is funny, but is this possible?" Right. Uh, and that's the the scariest and best thing about this movie. Right. And also, like it's it's interesting that where this point this hit me at my point in life where i saw it a few days after the latest uh war of words that happened between north korea and our our uh, the american presidents uh or the trump administration and how you know kind of i guess cavalier is like the what the what the nor like like the average person is describing this attitude towards the like nuclear warfare and like famously throughout the campaign donald trump's like i won't rule out using nukes in europe i won't rule out using the like like for the first time you're hearing talk like that that i haven't heard since i was an early teenager mm-hmm. and how you combine that with also this like pig-headed stupidity that's shown in this movie where people are not they don't want to rush to conclusions. We've got we've got a situation where an hour from now life on earth could end, but mm-hmm. we don't want to rush into judgments. We don't want to cast too much blame. Let's you know, let's let's stay focused on solutions. We don't like it's like this this kind of like attitudes are all kind of coming together and making this even more relevant than 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 normal. Hmm. Because I guess I also this I guess I what that says, stuff like, is a problem. I just also I also watched I also watched the Vietnam War documentary, and mm-hmm. you can actually see this like this pig-headed military analysis preventing progress. Well, not progress, but like the 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 complete inhibition to uh, admit defeat, mm-hmm. and the pride in the troops' capabilities overriding the fact that you cannot achieve this particular political uh, uh, objective. You just can't. Sure. And then, sure. The, like, as soon as you try to say, like, well, wait a second, the natural implication is, uh, 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 you're not, you're, you're, you're not putting uh, the American people first. Mm. How can you think about your standing in history? Put the, the, and I'm like, it's, it, but you're talking about killing 20 million Americans no matter, and, and, and all of the Russians, it's, I don't know, it's, I don't, I don't know. I I don't know that things have gotten a lot better as far as like the fail safes and safeguards because ultimately, no. no matter, I don't know that they can. Like part of this movie, people. part of this movie is scary to me not because of how stupid everyone in charge is, but how right they are about certain aspects of the problem here. Like you have you have contingency plans 
for to safeguard the American people in the event that the president is incapacitated or unreachable, right? Yeah. And that leads to a situation where some hot-headed lunatic can just give the code right. under under standard recognized protocols mm-hmm. and start World War Three or, or potentially the apocalypse. And that's right. not like that's not in and of itself necessarily a, a foolish or stupid thing to have in place, right? Right. right. So. So it, the scary thing to me is how big the problem is and how how hard the solutions are and and how much honestly how much willpower how much um good nature I think the people who are in control of it must have in order to prevent an apocalypse of that that kind. Yeah, I remember cuz like you know there's this famous incident with the the Cuban missile crisis um you know and it's also funny cuz I just watched 13 days like a month ago mm-hmm. uh the Kevin Costner uh, kind of Cuban Miss Crisis l- l- movie, overview yeah. of that, but I was also um, in that Dan Carlin. You remember he told the story about um, there was a missile launch that the uh, America undertook, or maybe it was Greenland or something. But there was a particular quality of the snowpack around it that reflected the thermal energy and made it seem like it was a, either nuclear de- detonation or intercontinental <laughs> bu- an, un, an unannounced intercontinental ballistic missile uh-huh. and the the Soviet premier could not get a hold of the American president in time like and he like all protocols said that he should launch the nukes yeah and he just at the end of the day is like this is just one missile mm-hmm. it came out of nowhere there's no like this just this has got to be something fucked up. I'm not yeah. willing to pull the trigger on 300 million people on the off chance that this is this is an out of the blue. Out of, and like if that had been a person who just liked to listen to the general's advice, where you know shit, America could be a, a radiated wasteland yeah. over a fucking mistake. Or or like more interestingly to me, I guess is the initial discovery of these weapons mm-hmm. and how one sided that whole that whole conflict would have been, you know, like we had at that time, the power to wipe out every civilization on the planet. If we so chose. Yeah. Imagine they had no retaliation in in store, none whatsoever. Because I mean, we've seen in a history where Americans can be pretty fucking xenophobic. Sure. And for the first time in human history, you had the star Trekian power where you could just obliterate every other country. Every single one, all, all gone. And, and, and and just take the ball and go home and, and and to not do that, like a five year period. We did, we didn't, we didn't. And then, then for the 65 years afterwards that we've had this, we've had this sword of Damocles over our heads for so long that we kind of forgot it was there until the last year or two. It's like, oh Absolutely. shit, this fuck. Why hasn't someone done anything about the sword? <laughs> right. Um, it is. It is. It's nuts. And what really, what really sold it to me is the conversations I have with my son, where I explain to him like mutual assured destruction and uh, the atomic, uh, <laughs> uh, international doomsday atomic device. scientist yeah. doomsday clock, and uh, like as an eleven, as a rational eleven year old. He doesn't find much solace in any of my answers. And like, there's I, not a lot to be found. Honestly. And I'm like, you just as an like, you have to trust the adults to take care of the shit. And when you become an adult, it's your job to work with all the other adults to take care of shit. And it's worked this far. The scary but that's, thing, that's the best thing I can tell him. And it's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. And you don't want to tell him if you become an adult, because that's what we're facing here, right? It's right. not. It's not an assured thing that if the adults fuck up. The adults kill everyone, right. essentially. So, like, that's—it's crazy to me that—and I think, honestly, the people in power understand the the 
magnitude of the choices they would be mm-hmm. making. And ultimately, that is what prevails. But things like um, mutually assured destruction mm-hmm. are the scariest thing to me, which this movie deals heavily with, obviously, right. with the doomsday device. Um, that is the scariest thing, because if something goes wrong in your plan or your contingency plans in this case... Mm-hmm cause an event to happen that can't be reversed all of your deterrents then become problems you know right right and how like it did like as you said it makes a grim sort of sense sure like well of course the doomsday device is on an automatic you don't want to like you want to remove the human element and like yeah. that's one of the best parts about the, the dr strangelove performance is peter sellers as dr strangelove kind of having this like look of admiration about the like you know it's like oh we thought about doing this and oh my god there's that's so many that that's i think the peak brilliant part of the movie where the soviet premier accuses the americans of researching the doomsday technology and trying to get in a doomsday race and the president denies it and the premier says our source was the new york times Uh and then like dr strange love is like oh yes we've been considering this tech and he goes on this whole long thing about how it's possible and how Mm -hmm. you know and then at the end he's like but the (laughs) whole point of it is that not to be a secret and you've and then he's like well the premier was saving it for right the you know how he loves surprise like the july 4th of this right you know how he loves surprise and it's just like all yeah. fucking mad, but it also makes a certain kind of sense. Absolutely, it does. And yeah. that's the other thing is like, you know, the idea that like, well, we got forty bombers and we can't recall them. So like, is the same thing just to just go through with it? Just fucking, just fucking sneak attack and nuke Russia, right? Like at least one what of the survives, says, right? Yeah. Like we've, we're in this scenario. The best possible outcome for us, should this go off, is for us to do this sneak attack, yeah, and and go in completely. And yeah. he's not necessarily wrong about that, but it's a certain certain kind of mentality. And I think the president in this is interesting because he is very, very level headed. Yes, um, and. and if you had someone less level-headed in that scenario, it could have gone way worse. Although, I, I want to ask you what you think happens at the end of this movie, but um, it, it it could have gone way worse, way faster, we'll say. Right. Well, that's the other thing is that I guess there – because I was doing some research, and I guess at the time in the 60s era kind of war doctrine, the idea that you would have underground bunkers or try to take measures to negate uh, you know, the mutual assured part of destruction was seen as controversial and abhorrent because if you fuck with mad and one side can win, then mm-hmm. suddenly the wheels start spinning and advantage can be had and you can start thinking like, well, they wipe out 90% of us, but we wiped out 100% of them. Yeah, so you, want the, you want the stalemate. Right. You're playing for stalemate at that that's point. Why, or the public wants you to play for stalemate. And that's why, like, the Ronald Reagan doing Star Wars is so unco- was so controversial because... You had, for the first time in a long time, a power saying, you know what? I'm not comfortable with the state of this game board. I'm going to make it to where we are going to be safe in a nuclear war. And then, you know, good people disagree over what happens and how much the military buildup had to do with the Soviet collapse and how much Reagan's provocation stressed that system to the breaking point. And, you know, then it's also uh, the knee-jerk... Uh, analysis of history in like the late 90s early aughts is probably different than like you know if you look at the geopolitical board now and the state rushes in and our position with them now it's like did we you know how much did we really gain like it's <sighs> and that's the scary part is this the fact genie that, yeah the six, 1964 movie is just as scary and funny for the exact same yeah. reasons is kind of an indictment about 
global mm-hmm. politics. I think so, but it's also kind of remarkable that we have made it this long without any With, major incident, major nuclear Isn't incidents. that the surest proof that regardless of where you go in the world, that people are far more good than it could be, bad? Yeah. They're far more compassionate and well, reactionary. Well, I mean, then you get into the trouble of mutual assured destruction, right? Because at, that, at this point, we are kind of in that boat, like— both sides are going to suffer enormous casualties, yeah. enormous losses, and nobody has an upper hand in that. Nobody has the advantage. Now you're talking about something like Star Wars, where you can, you know, shoot down missiles from space and stuff. You right. you gain an advantage, and the other side's nuclear weapons cease to become as much of a threat. Then you're back in the dawn of the nuclear age right. scenario, where the America does have the advantage would be able to destroy all other civilization without many repercussions. Mm-hmm. Now you're back in that that very scary place of having yeah, the, the wa- person whose fi- whose finger is on the trigger needing to be like this extremely right. thoughtful and and willful person yeah. Yeah. in the face of all his military advisors telling him, bl- blow these fuckers up. Right. They'll like, never have to think about it again. Matthew Broderick runs the simulation, and now the Whopper no longer says the only winning move is not to play. Right. It's like, oh, well, we can actually do this, absorb 90% of the missiles and the counterattack, and then we only lose... 10 million to their 150 million. Right, right. The, 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 you get the wrong person in power with their finger on that button, and that that will happen. Yeah, and that's the other thing is, like, that other guy whose name escapes me who was talking about, you know, the, the coined the phrase Megadeth, and he did st- serious statistical analysis of, like, when ec- the, uh, the, the government's economy or when the United States economy and the global economy would recover depending on 100 million, <laughs> oh, 10 geez. million, a billion. To do- and I'm like yeah. – how do you even begin to calculate that? Like, if you irradiate most of Asia and Europe, all of our imports and exports, yeah, like, yeah. like especially, and it's even gotten worse because the world has gotten smaller and more interconnected. Like, yeah. can you even like? I, I, that's the one thing. Like, I, you know, I'm trying to assure my son the best I can that like we're going to be fine. You're going to go to bed. And you're going to wake up, and the sun's just going to rise. But like, I'm thinking like, shit. If North Korea does vi- vaporize Japan or Guam or Anchorage or L.A. and we massively retaliate and completely destroy North Korea, what the fuck does that do to South Korea and Japan yeah. and China and Vietnam and, you know, like... They're not exactly strategic weapons. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I mean, it's I like, know they talk about strategic nukes. And but... then, like, as a 41-year-old man, that's still like, man, like, that, that's not something you can just do for free. It's not like, yeah. oh, well, you'll fucking stub my toe and I'll blow your head off. Well, yeah, that's going to be a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, and the the more ridiculous part is that it could potentially happen because of the safeguards we put in place to prevent it. Right. Or which is the other thing is like what about. what struck me in this movie is like maximum uh, deceit and treachery assumed by the enemy, complete perfection assumed from our own sides. Sure. Like, everything yeah. is geared up. They're like, oh, the Russian is going, the Ruskies are going to come and deceive and trick us, and we're going to have to turn off all our radios. And even if, like, there's this one scene that's just so fucking darkly funny where these troops are observing American soldiers coming to retake the base of this general, uh, uh-huh. Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> right. The names in this show, we got to talk about the names. <laughs> we will, yeah. Um, are, are, they're coming to retake the base from this madman, and uh-huh. the soldiers are like... God damn, those, those trucks look, got it. Those com- yeah. commies got a hold of those. Those trucks look so real. Yeah. Where do you think they got them? Oh, well, <laughs> locked and loaded. <laughs> and they're like, it's yeah. just so hilarious because they're following the orders this guy gave. And 
I, 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 it's, it's so fucking funny. And that's the other thing is that I'm very surprised. And I guess you, you, like you said, you got, you got this guy to write the movie for you. So Kubrick had help with that. A little bit. Yeah. The comedy stuff. But this guy shot it. And I like, like, I can't believe how funny it is. And, and Kubrick's instincts, like George C. Scott. Um, there's lots yeah. of lore about his relationship with Stanley Kubrick and how they, you know, George C. Scott's an interesting guy. He refused an Oscar for philosophical reasons. He, uh, you know, obviously cared a lot about his craft and he came to blows with Stanley Kubrick. One of the trivia is that George C. Scott's obsessed with chess. Hmm. And one of the things about Stanley Kubrick is a lot of people said that he could have been a grandmaster had he not pursued so every time they'd have a, 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 a creative difference, Kubrick would challenge him to chess, winner take all. And I guess 90% of the time he mopped the floor with George C. Scott. Uh-huh. Um, and that earned his respect. But one of the interesting things is, and this is why I think that Kubrick is, is sneaky funny, is that George C. Scott did not want to give this broad, hammy performance, which is one of the best parts of the the, the movie. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick fooled him and said, okay, look, this is our first take. It's a warm-up take, everybody. Go loose, go big. Go, like, bigger and hammier, and then we'll do, we'll do the real take. Yeah. And, you know, George C. Scott would do the crazy stuff, and then he'd get it out of the system, and then he'd do what, you know. And, but uh, in the editing room, Kubrick used almost all of the crazy over-the-top shit. Like, George C. Scott mm-hmm. falls down yeah. accidentally in the middle of performance. Uh-huh. And not only does Kubrick keep that in... But he leaves like a quarter of a second at the end of the take where George C. Scott loses his composure and starts to laugh. Uh-huh. And Cooper could have edited that out and it would have just looked like an intentional thing. But he left it in because that's somehow funnier. And mm-hmm. Slim Pickens, the the uh, major Kong. Right. No one he told him this that this comedy. was a comedy. Yeah. And that's super fucking funny when he gives that like. Uh, when he goes and gets his hat out of the safe and says, well, boys, everyone's counting on us back at home. And he gives this speech. He thinks he's given this big war movie speech. And it's funnier. Like, yeah. Kubrick really knew what the hell. Like, obviously, he's got one of the most gifted comic performers of uh, of of all time. Peter Sellers. And Peter yeah. Sellers uh, just hamming the hell out of all three of the roles he's given. Yeah. But I thought a lot of his instincts and, again, his tricksy nature to try to get the best out of performers, sometimes against their will. Um, this the, the, the same the way he got genuine terror out of people. He got genuine laughs by bullying and tricking and lying. Uh-huh. And it's is it is it evil genius? Is it bad? I don't I don't know. But goddamn, what how, that's a what a way to make a comedy. It is effective. Um, I don't know about the means justifying the ends, but uh, the ends are certainly juicy here. Because uh, George C., George C. Scott for this movie in my opinion, makes the comedy of this movie. Like, Peter Sellers, nothing to take away from him. I love Peter Sellers in oh, I, I, basically everything he's ever done. What, except, except George C. Scott in this movie is, unbeknownst to him, so fucking good at oh, the comedy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, his facial expressions, the way he's noshing away on this gum the whole time, uh, that role that he does, like... Every time he is on the screen, I am just laughing. I'm 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 cracking up more at George C. Scott than I am at Doctor Strangelove. Uh, you know, that's the other thing is I remembered how funny Doctor Strangelove was right. with his uncontrolled. And I guess Peter Sellers like 
really funny. It is. And Peter Sellers, like, ad-libbed all this shit. Sure. Uh, including the Nazi salute uh, and the glove. Like, I guess that was Stanley Kubrick's gloves. That he liked to wear gloves on set because he liked to adjust the lighting and he got tired of burning his hands on the high wall. Okay. And he's like, let yep. me have that glove. And he just improvised this, like, a lo- this this evil Nazi hand that's trying to to, to overcome him at all time. <laughs> but I thought the funniest like, – I, I see what you're saying about George C. Scott. But uh, I thought the funniest was Peter Sellers' performance as the Mandrake. As Mandrake, it's really good. Where, yeah. where, when, when, when Jack Jack Ripper is sitting there and telling him his story, and like he's got this nervous British laugh. Yep. And he like it 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 feels like a genuine performance of this guy realizing what a madman he's dealing with and how yeah. profoundly fucked not just he and the world is, and he has this like. Nervous breakdown, <laughs> laughter, and it's real, but it's also super funny. And realizing that he's possibly the only person on the planet who could stop this yes. at this point. Yes. And that he has a duty to do so. And then that scene where Mandrake is is trying to get the codes out of him, <laughs> and he has resigned himself to killing himself uh-huh. in the bathroom. Oh, uh-huh. that's so good. I was feeding you, Jack. I was feeding you. <laughs> yes, I was feeding you, old boy. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, but to go back to George C. Scott, I think yeah. – what do you think the funniest part of his performance is? Because I got a clear scene where I thought was both funny and profound. Which was, um, it was probably the maybe the airplane scene where he's talking about the pilots. Yes, trying to like his can can your boys make it? Hell yeah, they can! Oh, wait till you see how flat this below this guy. <laughs> right. They can fucking charbroil the hens at the. And he gets caught He's up doing as, the as airplane the, wings, the pride and, yeah. in, uh, how awesome and badass is military, yeah. and how that's going to fuck the world, and the both reactions. Yeah. Oh god, and it has entirely so blinded him to what he should be considering. Yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. how profoundly fucked they are if they succeed. Yeah. No, it's 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 pretty funny. I mean, it's not. I mean, shit. It's 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 hysterical. Yeah. I laugh so hard, so many points in this movie. The the phone booth scene is pretty good too. Or he's trying to reach the president and he doesn't have enough coin. Oh yeah, uh, and he's he has the guy shoot the coke machine and he's like, "You're gonna have to answer to the Coca Cola company," <laughs> <laughs> which is also kind of sneaky. Like, uh, yeah, like, like how powerful corpora- yeah. corporations are. Uh-huh. Like, and the fact that he can't get a collect call to the White House to save the world it's <laughs> it's it's really funny now. The other thing that was interesting is that I guess the Slim Pickens role, they originally wanted Peter Sellers to do a fourth role. Uh, right. And that's the other thing. I, yeah. I want to talk about that. There's so many things I want to talk about. Mm. And he sprained his ankle. He had trouble with the Texas accent. They overcome okay. that. Yeah. Then he sprained his ankle. He could no longer get around that cramped bomber set. Mm. So they first reached out to John Wayne. He didn't even bother responding. They then reached out to huh. Haas. I don't remember the guy's name, but the guy who played Haas, the big dumb guy in Bonanza. Okay. Uh, I don't actually. Yeah. I shouldn't say the dumb guy. Just the big galoot on Bonanza. Okay. And his agent said, "Nah, this role's too pinko for my guy." What? And I'm like, the fact that this film can be seen as communist sympathetic, like, like this is an American wow. problem. This is a human problem. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I want to talk about: the fact that, like, the thing that staggered me in watching the Vietnam War film was back home how quickly camps got divided between we're with the president by the way a democratic yeah. president this time because it's like i don't think 
this started off as partisan. It started off as well-meaning, like, my country, right or wrong, which I understand the sentiment. I think mm-hmm. nowadays it seems kind of childish and naive. Sure. But, like, if you have that attitude and the other people are like, look, I'm an American, too. I just really disagree with how we're fighting the war in Vietnam and whether it can even be fought. And I'm looking at these facts and here's – and the other side just says, well, you're a fucking un-American. Like, how that's still a thing – in the country. How far are you no willing to take that? No matter how many times that yeah. has gotten us into trouble, no matter how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of American lives and millions of foreign lives it's wasted, no matter how many trillions of dollars of debt that that's gotten us into, that that's still a thing you can say. When someone says, I'm not sure I agree with this war or the way we're fighting it, you can say, well, then you're not an American. Mm-hmm. Like, how – the results are in. That's a stupid argument. That's a stupid argument that anyone anyone that makes it in public should be instantly laughed out of the room, and yet right. it still happens. Because it's an effective emotional uh, manipulation tool, yeah. essentially. Plus, well, I don't think Americans are very good at— it's an easy response. Is, and and, and, and also, Americans are not very good at critically looking at our own history. Sure. I don't know. I mean, just how how far do you fall I'm that sorry. down the rabbit hole? Humans are not very good at That's looking back too, critically. Yeah. It's like this isn't like I. Sometimes I think like when I get really bad, feeling bad about myself and my country, I think like, okay, well, in a theoretical world where I don't know Somalia is ruling the world, mm-hmm. um, I bet we would be. You know, like I I think anytime you have this this global hedge uh, this this global superpower and it's like a, a it's a, it's a monolithic power, no one can do everything right because. No matter how high-minded the ideals you have for a country, the, 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 the thing that tests that is when your country's interests are not aligned with its values. Hmm. And what I've seen, yeah. especially in 20th century, 21st century America, is anytime our interests are not aligned with our ideals, we <laughs> fucking chuck the ideals and go for those interests. Sure. And it burns us every – not every, but most of the goddamn time, and yet we continue to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not an American problem. It's a human problem. It just it – just, we're the, the 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 for better or worse the world super cop and so we're the ones that show up at a SWAT and shoot the guy without asking questions and get and get the, the it could be anybody but it's us, um, yeah. but it, that, that just seems like it's it's it, the onus is on us to kind of fix that and to to, 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 to make things better and I I don't know how because like humans fucking pig headedness is seems like resistant that's what's so funny about this is because even in the moment of contemplating Armageddon. There's the the, the pig headedness in that room is still there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like I, like you know I watched Thirteen Days and like there was a line. This is a drama, not a comedy. But like someone's trying to say the JFK, like hey, it won't be that bad, you know. Like I, I, I he didn't say ten to twenty million tops, but it was along those lines. Mm-hmm. And the the guy playing Jid, that Bruce Greenhold or whatever, he's just like kind of like visibly slumps. Like, how the fuck can you say that? You know, I won't be so bad. Yeah, we'll get our hair must, but we'll we'll right. come out on top. Let's. Yeah, no, it's it's profoundly fucked up, and I, I think the the president to me is the linchpin of this entire movie because his character is the only one thinking rationally through the entirety of the situation throughout the whole movie. Right, Doctor Strangelove has this crazy lust for seeing, uh, you know, his weapons used, um, and all all of his theories put into action. Right, um, and essentially like. What is what is the translation of his original name? It's something like Strange um, Love, certain fate or or cherished fate. I think is oh, the I literal thought, translation of his German name. Oh, I thought it actually was. Uh, uh, it literally translates to Strange Love. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Um, 
but I, I read Cherished Fate somewhere. That that seems very, you know, fatalist <laughs> to uh-huh, me. Uh-huh. Um, he wants to see that, and George C. Scott wants to see his boys succeed and right. wants to see this massive military arm used. Um, and, and the president is in the center of all this, having to analyze it all. Uh, and he is the only one with his head screwed on straight, who's but... trying to figure out a solution rather than just rolling with with whatever comes his way. But also, I thought it was interesting that they showed the president as being just as defensive and, you know, like when he's talking to, was the premier like Sergi or Sergey or it's <laughs> the like, premier. well, or yeah. like, well, I, well, I think it was kiss. Off? I'm, I'm kiss just off. as upset as you Dimitri. are. Yeah, yeah. I'm just as upset as you are. I'm capable of just as much. Re- like the fact that right. he was getting, uh, no, we are both equally sorry. <laughs> yeah. He's on the phone with the guy saying, Oh, by the way, we're going to accidentally yeah. bomb your country and kill millions of your citizens. And he's like, you know, like, I think you're get you're flying off the handle. Like, yeah, he's he's I guess the most level-headed guy in the war. He's the one saying, "Gentlemen, gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room." <laughs> right. But he's just as kind of fucked up when he has to deal with the actual enemy. Uh, less so. Certainly less so. Sure. Yeah. Um, he he's the only thing that even makes this movie uh work for as long as it does. Yeah. Cuz uh, barring him, like you have, you know, Turgidson in command everything's going to hell immediately. He's going to yeah. fire off all the missiles. He's oh, going to yeah. send the boats. Um, it, um, it's amazing to me how well they do with characterizing the premiere. Uh-huh. When, when he's you not... never see him and you never hear him. Right. Ever. But he is a powerful character in uh-huh. this movie. Yeah. You get the idea that he's kind of like this vodka-swilling <laughs> party He's boy child in a lot of ways like listening to mu- listen to loud russian music and right. like he's got like hookers and blow in his room which you know isn't exactly a flattering uh mm-hmm. depiction of a soviet premiere but it's funny it is funny yeah and yeah. it's vivid it is and you never hear him you never see him it is um the other thing i learned is that the originally that peter siller sellers to make the american president appear at maximum weakness as opposed to you know George C. Scott's vigor and and enthusiasm. Uh, they gave him a bad cold, so he's huh. coughing and sneezing, and he had this nasal drip. And like I guess Sellers was so funny that like take after take was ruined by the cast and crew just cracking up at the dialogue. Uh-huh. So Kubrick is like, okay, fuck all this. Uh, let's let's pull it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and as a result, I think the, that what I'm getting at is it's interesting as you see this as a as, as huge feature of choice. But it seems like making him pull back had the accidental effect of making the American president the most level-headed center that the, the man. The film that's spun crazy around. that that's accidental because I feel like you need that rock at the center to show how even in even with someone rational at the helm, right. the the chaos of of the people around him and the events surrounding him could cause doom right. and catastrophe. Regardless of the level-headed nature of him, I I thought he was supposed to be a counterpoint yeah, yeah, yeah. to everyone else. If you're telling me he was supposed to be a farce in his in his own, well, I mean, so I say accident, but like these are decisions that Kubrick made. Like the other thing that's infamous about this movie that I didn't even know because when I originally watched this, the internet was in its infancy, and you couldn't just go and find like yeah dozens of film criticism and history about Strange Love. Um, 
but I was watching their second watch. I noticed that there's just laden food tables in the back of the the war room, right? And they shot, and I don't think this is this has been this is like you can't like I don't even think watch this on YouTube. Maybe not. Um, but they shot this whole sequence where at the end they got everyone gets into a pie fight mm-hmm. as like a metaphor for everyone getting and like at the end literally everyone is covered head to toe. Like I found this picture of George C. Scott and he like looked a three like three stooges sort of thing. Yeah, he right? looked like a marshmallow man because he was just yeah. covered with meringue from head to toe. Like to get the idea that like. Winning this pie fight is about as realistic as winning the nuclear war. Uh-huh. But it was so slapstick and people slipping that Kubrick's like, this is not satire. It's a farce. And he cut it. Yeah. And that's what's so it's like. It's it's it. It's different from what was scripted. But his instincts are so laser sharp that anything that detracted from the satire or the inherent funniness of the situation that is not funny, he excised. OK. Yeah, I think that's a smart decision. Um, the I have one major gripe with this movie. Okay, which is I think when Slim Slim Pickens rides that bomb in, that should be the end of the movie. Um, and they yes. should have moved around the end if he wanted to get that final scene in with Doctor Strangelove. That, move it to before that. Agreed. Where where they're considering the implications. If this plane does make it, we have a backup plan. The mines. Yeah. Um, I think coming back to them and then cutting away to the nuclear explosions at the very end is a a little weird. It doesn't quite work for me. I think I understand where he's going for the fact that, like, Slim Pickens was the, like, that's the climax of the movie. And mm-hmm. then you've got, like... And the retaliation is going to take it's time. It's going to take some time, yeah. long enough for them to debate this thing. And the fact that, like, oh, we're the, the, the powerful people, the powerful men are going to be just fine in this in this world. And then also to show the, so, the, the Soviet diplomats starting to take pictures. Of, like, <laughs> right. it's just... I, I like what he's trying to do, but I agree that the one slight blemish on this film is that, yeah, the pacing at the end was was bizarre. And what's funny is, like, it was so bizarre that when it came back, I'm like, oh, is this, like, some kind of weird director's cut? Because I, <laughs> I, yeah. I thought he was going to roll credits at the right. end. And like, I, I thought there's this whole scene of him talking about 10 to 1 female ratios and mm-hmm. all that other stuff and, like, the the out of control saluting and mind fear like really came and I'm like well I guess they just cut that scene and then when it came back I'm like oh shit this is because it, it was it was weird yeah and to me it, it sort of undermines the doomsday nature of that that action of Slim riding the bomb in because there is no turning back at that point right like that's that's the whole point they of the doomsday device right. once the doomsday device is triggered everyone is dead like even if you could talk the soviet premier into like okay we just destroyed this missile silo which may or may not be near a population center you're right. just gonna have to take that punch we're gonna get a free punch on you take you. that punch but if it sets off the doomsday device which is what they're worried about yeah. everything's done anyway so that, like yeah 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 like so i'm saying to me, if you could talk is, to him it doesn't matter because the machine's gonna do it anyway yeah so to me that is the end of the movie and the immediate swift cut to just explosions going off would have been the perfect note to say hey doomsday device went off and that's the end game yeah no there's nothing else to be said here no no i i I agree with that uh the other thing is that i was amazed at how much technical detail because like you know they they go over and some of it's funny and some of it's just just interesting where they go over all the different coding procedures and they go yeah and there's this one scene where 
General Pickin or uh, made Major Kong is going over the survival kit with his men, uh-huh. and you're like, it has a 45 caliber automatic handgun. It's got this. It's got it's got uh, 200 ruples. It's got a hundred in gold. It's got it's got three pairs of nylons and two pairs of lipstick. And he goes, oh, you could have a real good time in Las Vegas with this. And it's like, what the? Fu-? And, and there's a condom. And like, is that a gag about like the fact that the army issued uh, condoms to troops storming the beach in Norton? And then they, you, you, yeah, it would look ridiculous if all you knew is that every soldier was issued a condom on D-Day. Sure, because that's how knew, bad we're gonna fuck the Germans. If you knew that they're supposed to slip it over the end of their gun barrel to keep it from getting clogged with seawater and dirt, ah, that makes sense. And then at the end sense. of the movie. Mm-hmm. They talk about the Soviets, uh, you know, starting to grumble about the communism not working and they're like using nylons as form of currency. You realize that the huh. nylons and lipstick is just another alternate form of doomsday currency. Gotcha. Like if ruples don't work, you got gold. If gold don't work, <laughs> they got nylons and lipstick. And it's like that little throwaway seemed like made that other one even funnier in retrospect. Yeah. But then pouring over all those switches and details. And at the time... That you know, B fifty two bomber was like state of the art, hmm. and uh, the United States Air Force would wanted no part in cooperating with this film. So Kubrick pieced together as many details as he can, and I guess made like a almost photorealistic cockpit and code breaking and and and, and code system to the extent wow. that when his um, assistant came back with all this material, he was actually quietly worried that the FBI was going to show up that like not all this there's no way you could get all this stuff out of the public record but like yeah when they're doing all the codes I just thought that stuff was was super cool because it's like the thought that goes through all of these contingency plans Mm -hmm. was so exquisite but it's the human failure that they didn't account for and this this concept of maximum generosity given to our side and our execution and maximum skepticism and deceit and Mm -hmm. you can see the 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 general um he's like uh you know I, i i don't know mr president i want to hold off on that kind of judgment until i have all the facts with the second the Russian guy comes into the war room, he's like, "Yeah, he's going to take pictures, and this is a commie trap." And like, he's, he's got him in a headlock. <laughs> he's rushing to all kinds of fucking judgment when it's about the Russians. But his guys, uh, it's I mean, goddamn, that's that's humanity in a nutshell. Uh, to go really quickly back to the emergency kit that they're given, yeah, I, what is with the gum in this movie? Because they're issued nine sticks of gum mm-hmm. or nine packs of gum or something, and you can see throughout the entire movie. Uh, Turgeson is just chomping away at gum. Like yeah. every line he says, he puts another stick of gum in his mouth. Uh, and then in the scenes with Mandrake and Ripper, uh-huh. uh, Mandrake is like holding a piece of gum for no real reason. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I know that's a common stereotype about Americans. Do we chew a lot of gum? That like, because you know, remember, like in Fuck, the movie I Godzilla, don't chew much gum. That they had the Jean Renault uh, when he issued his American disguise kit to his French special tr- forces troopers, and they're on the back, they're they're on the truck with Matthew Broderick. He just gives him a piece of gum, and then and and, and I don't remember. Why do you remember this? <laughs> I don't because that's what my job on this podcast Godzilla? is. Okay, Jesus Christ, man. And he's and then they and he looks back, and they're all kind of open mouth, and like it made him look like. They instantly went from, you know, espresso-swilling, sophisticated Frenchmen to slack-jawed Americans just jo- chomping on the gum. Wow. Uh, <laughs> okay. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but 
Yeah, there's I, gum all over his movie. I, I don't know either. That's the other thing. Because the other the other thing that um, but that, that felt like it was Turgeson's contribution to this mm-hmm. emergency kit is mm-hmm. he had them put nine packs of gum in there mm-hmm. just for the troops. Oh, so you get so General Turgeson, which yeah. involved you know, there's so much sexual imagery in this film, which uh-huh. I guess most people. This is the other thing I got in my research is most people didn't get on first view the fact that like the B-52s are essentially fucking with another. Playing at the beginning, the intro, yeah. Uh, there's um, the, all the names are like uh, you got Turgenson, you got this Jack the Ripper that's going off about precious bodily fluids and his, you know, the women sense my power and they want my essence and yeah. And the president is named Merkin McMuffin, which literally Merkin Mer- Merkin is like a pubic wig. Okay, it's, it's like a wig for your 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 vagina or Fuck. your 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 penis. I didn't know what his and name was. His, you know, it's, it's like his, his name literally translates in like pussy wig McPussy. Uh-huh. Uh, in the con to, to in contrast to Turgenson, I oh man, I how the fuck how did, did they get, did, the how did get away with, with those, those names, man? Sure, um, and and Ripper with his cigar, mm-hmm. uh, chomping away at that thing is you know very phallic and right. Uh, I don't know. I, I read some uh, an article that had talked about like the masturbatory nature of it. Mm-hmm. But oh, and the uh, the guy that the the does the whole I, I hope uh, you're gonna have to answer to Coca Cola. Oh, yeah. His name's Bat Guano, right? Bat and, shit. and how Sellers Sellers says that looks in Major Bat Guano. If that's your real name, <laughs> like like. That's the thing. Like, I wanted to ask you, but he talks about preverts too all the yeah, time. Yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. assuming that this British guy is a prevert. Guy. Well, he's got the mustache. I mean, <laughs> I guess uh, there's a lot of sexual stuff in here for sure. Um, and he tells him he, he gets him in the phone booth, and he says, "If you try any perversions, yeah, right. What's he gonna do in this phone booth? I don't know. Whip his dick out. You know what guys I guess, can do. I guess. Uh, also, the whole idea." Of shooting, helping the enemy, quote unquote enemy, shoot down yeah. your like, and because the president's like, well, I know there are boys, and I mean that's happened in real life because you know nine eleven famously, uh, U.S. airmen were scrambled mm-hmm. and to intercept these planes, and they were or they had they had orders to fire them if they looked like and uh, I don't know, I just I, no, it's the right it's the right call. It's just a tough one to make. Yeah, it's 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 in, in the right mind, call. Anyway. It's just it's just like the most terrible type of calculus you can you can imagine. It's yeah, like it's, it's like spot decision. going into the reactor room, except for he's tricked. He doesn't know he's, you know what I'm saying? It's like he's sat. It's 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 a weird heroic self sacrifice that you are not aware that you're making. Right. I actually thought well, that they were going to go. Yeah. I thought that they were going to try to triple that around by when when they when Kong finds out that. Uh, the plane won't be able to make it back. I thought mm-hmm. that they can either limp back to base or continue with their bombing run. I thought they're going to have a scene where he has to take the men's vote. So, like mm-hmm. in the movie terms, it would kind of soften the blow that, like, well, these Americans were going to sacrifice themselves. They they made the 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 eyes wide open uh-huh. uh, choice to sacrifice themselves rather than to abandon their duty. So, like, but no, I didn't. They didn't really do that. He's just like, hey, we're going to come. We're going to bomb this thing hell or high water. Yeah. I, it's that was that was tough for me because I don't know who to root for in that situation. You know, if you root for the pilots to succeed in their mission, mm-hmm. um, 
and to carry out their convictions, you yeah. root for the destruction of humanity. I mean, if you root for them to be shot down, you're rooting for the destruction of the crew who you're getting to know and love, you know? Yeah, and I, I it's thought— It's a tough situation to be in, and it emphasizes the tough choice that that is. And I thought that's where the genius of telling Slim Pickens, who, you know, he's the guy making the farty bean jokes on Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. that this is a serious film because there is a weight to him like, look, I know you've got fe- different feelings about thermonuclear war, and you probably wouldn't be a human if you didn't, but we got yeah. a job to do, and we— and like that's the fact that you've got these soldiers that put this unlimited faith into our democratic yeah. institutions and the people in charge. And then you they know what they're doing. You come back to the fucking war room. You come back to the fucking yeah. war room <laughs> to the pie fight or whatever. And right. it's just like, man, that's 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 the that's the biggest the, the biggest tragedy of of, of all. Mm. And the fact that like you know I don't know is it controversial to say the Vietnam War was uh, especially in later years is just a fucking boondoggle. That, I mean, it doesn't. Not not in the the circles that I run in, certainly. Yeah, probably not in the bald move circles. But like, that's the other shocking thing is how many, like like this happened writ large in in real life in the Vietnam War. So many patriotic Americans saying that like you know, well shit, if our country says we got to do this to fight the commies, and we got to do this to fight the commies, uh, and laid down their lives over hopeless objectives, mm-hmm. like like you know, like shit. Dude's won Congressional Medal of Honor. What uh, guy from my hometown? Yeah, uh, won a Congressional Medal of Honor for for valent- val- uh, for valor and gallantry in Vietnam. And I, how do you feel about that? I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, there those those airmen and you know the, um, all soldiers are also putting their faith in us mm-hmm. as civilians to not allow things to get so out of hand that the war they're fighting and the orders they're following are going to be so incredibly fucked that they would ever have to make a choice, mm-hmm. um, which should be sobering to a lot of people um, to consider that 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 thought. <laughs> right, right. Oh, by the way, Sammy Davis is the guy I was just speaking of because I know I'll get a dozen emails asking me, who are you talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's because it, I guess you celebrate the individual acts of heroism, but also there's like, I, I, there's not an asterisk on anyone's Congressional Medal of Honor, but also like in it's a, like unlike in World War II, where like the overall objective, hey, we ended Nazism and imperialism in Japan, like we airlifted the last bit of civilian equipment out of Saigon and kind of left, uh-huh. and now we buy stuff from Vietnam and everything's kind of fine. <laughs> Yeah. So if we never did this. Doesn't feel like it's much of an accomplishment. Yeah. But going back to the Vietnam, because this is also a stealth uh, Vietnam War uh, podcast, documentary podcast. Apparently. And the other thing is, like, just like in this movie, at each individual discussion where they talked about, like, at the time, how both sides saw this conflict. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I could see a reasonable person, and I think, you know, JFK and I think uh, Johnson and, you know, Sage Will about Nix, I think they were, like, re- rational people. Like, every step that you escalated the situation, like, I see, I think a reasonable person could agree or at least say that that position was reasonable. Later in the war, no, not so much. But, like, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the, the domino theory, like, that's not – it was wrong, but it wasn't insane. Sure. Like, well, what happens if communism just takes this? Like, we just let communists take over every fucking government and institute this. Like, you know, at what <laughs> point does it's it's like we're the you know I again it, it, it history did not bear out the, the that to be a, a fruitful line of thought or inquiry, but it wasn't insane at the time. Yeah, 
it did seem like we were in an existential war of ideology with this other country. And I, I think they, the movie does a good job to show, the, I guess, the weight of of the decision that the air crew makes here. Like when they yeah. when the code comes through, it's first it's disbelief, right? Yeah. Um, and then it turns into a certain kind of resolve. And I think um, the the time that they spend lingering on these codes that mm-hmm. come through and the the sophistication of the system that communicates this plan R or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. should impress upon you how big of a deal it is. Right. Um, and it certainly, I think, impresses that upon the flight crew. Right. And the fact that they have belabored, like Kubrick spends a good three minutes yeah. showing Kong go, like, get out of it, like, oh, there's no way, go back to the cockpit, look, look at the code, look at the thing, then individually look at the letters and have his finger pointing right. out, like, and it, it almost felt, seems silly, but... It felt old school Hollywood to yes. like, oh my God, but th- that was the point. It was building yeah. the tension and the disbelief in your own mind. Right. And and they do that a couple of times throughout the movie Yeah, to, to really impress that on you. Uh, the phrase that Kong enters or Ed says that he's going to complete this mission, <laughs> regard- I don't care if it hair lips everyone on Bear Creek. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck does that mean? Dude, I spent probably 30 minutes looking up, like trying to track down the etymology of this, Uh and I don't quite get it. How can anything you do cleft your palate? So this is interesting (laughs) to me because it is kind of like a folksy southern saying, I guess. Is it really? Like some people use it, and it's in a a song by like some horrible country artist. Uh, But to me, the, the context in which it's presented is so profoundly fucking dark that it mm-hmm. makes it hilarious because like having a cleft palate or a cleft lip or whatever it is mm-hmm. um is a congenital defect, right? Right. So you're talking about re- unleashing nuclear radiation oh. on an entire world essentially right. and if it flips everybody on on Bear Creek it in that context it's so profoundly fucked and funny to me. Right. No. I mean it was like that's the thing is like Watching Slim Pickens being funny without knowing or trying makes it even funnier in, in retrospect. <laughs> it does, yeah. Like the fact that, that he delivered that line he like did. straight up and with conviction. Yep. And like, it's one of those things where like you wish you could you wish you could go back. I w- I w- I wish I could I could do some kind of Rick and Morty alternative universe and see the version where George C. Scott won the chess match where he could deliver his lines straight like the way he thought they should be uh-huh. without his eyebrows working and his jaw ch- chomping the and 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 the version where Slim Pickens knew he was in a farce. <laughs> right. Um. And I'd like to see the version where Peter Sellers doesn't sprain his 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 leg and and is is that fourth character of, yeah. of Major Kong because I don't know that he would have been as funny i don't like know Peter Sellers is really super funny know. but like you said george c scott comes this close to 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 robbing him of the scenes yeah. that he's in yeah and yeah that's yeah and and the fact that uh and the fact that uh strange love wasn't the funniest thing in the movie that's the thing that really shocked me as watching this thing at four at 41 yeah even though he is hilarious uh, uh, i, I want to talk about the introduction of buck turgenson of okay of George C. Scott's character. Right. Because I don't quite understand what is happening in this scene. So mm-hmm. there's a woman who is lounging on a bed mm-hmm. with a lamp pointed at her. Yep. And she, when she gets up, she turns it off. So in my mind, she's in a swimsuit. This is a tanning, tanning lamp. Yeah. lamp. Yeah. But they're inside of a hotel room, mm-hmm. and she's got a tanning lamp. George C. Scott comes out of the bathroom in what I would describe as beach gear. Mm-hmm. 
in my mind, they are in a hotel room near a beach and they're about to go out on the beach and she's getting like a pre-tan going. But then she says when he leaves, it's 3 a.m. What Mm. is happening here? I think... So this is a very like 60s, 70s thing, but there used to be this concept of this thing called a heat lamp. That's a light bulb that is is fine-tuned to give off infrared heat rather than light. And it was a big thing to like install in your bathroom because it would warm your skin. Like it wouldn't warm the air. It was it microwave you. It was like an infrared. No, no, no. It's like it uses infrared heat to directly transfer rather than warming up the air in convection, which is a much less efficient. Like the Uh same concept of like radiative heating. But I think that's what they're the fact that they were going to do sexy times and she was skimpily clothed and she was using this heat lamp to keep warm. So she couldn't, wouldn't go underneath the covers and like. Okay, but why up. is he in like this fucking Hawaiian that's, shirt with his swim trunks? He's about, they're about to get down. I, I, that's a good question. I did. Maybe find, it's role play. I don't know, but I did find that woman strikingly attractive. Like normally, huh. when you watch a '60s or '70s film, it's like, oh, this is an attractive woman. Asterix, she's got fucked up '70s hair or just something <laughs> crazy. Like, like, okay. like, or she's wearing yeah. a ridiculous outfit, but like, she could be on the cover of Cosmo and nobody would. She could be a movie star. And I feel like there's, you know, there's there's rare women that have that kind of cross generational, like like beauty because because cultural standards drift and change. Maybe she was just average back in the day, and she's stunning now. Um, Speaking of rare women, yeah, that thinks she might have been the only female. She literally is because there is she's a bimbo. I'm not sure I like that. There is well, I think that's she's a a banging secretary like. That, and she's the only because the centerfold that uh, that Kong was also her. It was her. Yeah. Oh shit. So she's literally the only woman in this film. Fuck. And she's a sex object of both times. Right. Uh, hey everybody, 1964. Uh, well, you know, also 20. Uh, you know, 20, 2018. Are we doing that much better? Um, a little bit. But I, yeah, no, I think that's obviously a deliberate choice to show how like hyper masculine and ridiculous these guys thought processes are sure. where, to where yeah. the end they're almost licking their lips at the idea of nuclear winter because they're going to mm-hmm. get to go in a bunker and with 10 women with per 10 women male, they're, yeah. they're going to be selected for genetic fitness and beauty right uh and right. they're going to do these noble sa- it's this it's yeah it's all it's all gross and i think it's the, deliberately so there's something else i, I want right. to say about that because i read some kind of interview with her but it's 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 not coming to mind Shit. Anyway. Uh, What else do we want to talk about? Because we have a lot of feedback. I can say for sure that Turgenson did not try to plant that camera on the the Russian ambassador, I guess. Oh, see, my my interpretation was that he did plant the camera. But but the funny thing is, is yeah, he was also planning on doing it, you know. Well, my, my guess is... He would not be constantly carrying a Soviet-looking camera with him into the war room because they didn't know at the beginning that they was were going to be... Was it a Soviet-looking camera? I thought it was just a spy film camera. I thought it was... I don't know. I thought it had some design on the front or oh, something. Oh, maybe it did have like a camera or something. Um, but I don't know that he would carry that with him at all times looking to frame... Looking for the opportunity to frame the Russian uh, ambassador. So a couple things. This is the fun thing about getting old and recognizing people. James Earl Jones' first... Movie, yeah, he is the tail gunner, I think, of this B fifty two Stratofortress. Oh, okay, uh, 
amazing when I first saw it. And then my uh, my my wife, she was watching with me, and I, I'm like, that. oh, I said, my God, that's James Earl Jones. And she goes, no, it wasn't. Yeah. And the next scene, he opens his mouth, is fucking Darth <laughs> Vader. Uh-huh. He pops uh, his head up out of the floor. Did you recognize General or uh, General Ripper? Um, yes, but I don't know where from. I, I thought it was from this movie. He's Captain McCluskey from Godfather. Oh shit, you're right. He's the one that punches Mike in the face. He and absolutely then, is. And then, yep. and then, because I, I vaguely like the first scene. I'm like, God damn, he's so famous. And then I, when he was sitting there doing the the fluoride speech to uh, Sellers. I saw his boulder-like hand, like he's got these giant Liam Neeson hands, <laughs> and I'm like, "Son of a bitch, he's the guy that punched my, M- Michael Corleone." <laughs> and I was, I went on IMDb, and I was right. That's what he's known for: his hands. He does, he does have hooks. massive meat hooks, man. Like I would not want to take a, like I would probably, yeah, it would probably fuck up my nose the rest of my life too. Uh, that I think I, I want to continue to talk about Jack Ripper. Oh, okay, because I also want to talk about the sound design of the War Room and how. It's, oh, let's talk about the war room. Period. Okay, I, I think the the set is phenomenal. It is the the sound design. What what's so good about the sound design? Well, so this makes a lot more sense. But like, so in a normal set, you wouldn't build a roof on it because you would give the 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 DP um, and the lighting guys the maximum freedom to. But Kubrick knew he wanted to force the DP into a literal box to have to use the ambient lighting, so he fully finished it. It's a complete like self-contained concrete box or a triangle actually okay um and i thought it was interesting as, as you went around when you went a wide angle like to see the whole fucking war room design the mics were indistinct yeah like it's like they mic'd the camera so as you moved around the war room sounds got louder and i'm like that seemed like an amateurish but i know kubrick doesn't do anything amateurish so right. what effect was he trying to get was it like literally like you're there in the room it's a good question, and I, I noticed it, but I don't know what he's. Because every to other add. detail about that seemed intentional, like the fact that he covered the war room table in green poker felt, mm-hmm. like uh, so to, to make it give, even though that wouldn't show up on the black and yeah. white film, to give the actors the idea that they're playing high stakes intercontinental poker. Mm-hmm. Like, what was with the sound design and how? Um, intentional, the flaws of it seemed to be, but I couldn't. Also, I, I I tried looking at that for that. I couldn't find any commentary about that one thing I noticed. So I, I like could be the other thing is it could be like I watched this on Amazon. It could be because every too. once in a while, I feel like Amazon fucks up aspect ratios and s- fucks up audio stuff. I don't. Well, like Amazon I watched it on ca- Amazon will, as well, but I don't think they fucked that up i don't i don't know yeah. how they would yeah well i mean they just use a weird audio track that's was i don't know was yeah a weird mix i don't I, yeah from kubrick's personal archives <laughs> yeah i don't know because the other thing is like i guess i guess the first release of this movie was because it's got, got a like a weird four three aspect ratio like an old-timey hollywood production hmm. um okay and it was a is a square aspect ratio, but not the exact one Kubrick wanted. And I guess mm. the the when it got re released, it was like a one point eight five or whatever. Yeah. So like I don't know how that notorious how that, that changed his shot, but he was Quentin Tarantino has modeled his career after yeah, 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 yeah. Kubrick. And no, it's like regard. when you watch like uh, a Wonderful Life or Maltese Falcon, any of those old, it's like just so jarring how how squared up everything is. Yeah. Um, anyway, you were the one talking about the design of the war room. Uh, yeah, I love the design of the war room and like the the kind of very focused nature of it. So mm-hmm. you you have this massive space where 
the only thing that is really being concentrated on is this table and the board. The, 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 the big, big board. board. The Connor uh, will see our big board. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> and he starts clutching all of his papers to his chest <laughs> and closing his binders. His mega deaths. Uh, but I love that because it, it shows you, like, the focus and the narrow vision that some of these people have, right? Like, uh-huh. you you only see the things that are directly in front of these people. They've got their focus on the board and the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought it was really a, a cool visual way to highlight the, the, I guess, severity of the situation even. Yeah, it's weird. Kind of like, like... And sort of like the, the blinders that they're wearing. Yeah. Yeah, because they've got this like... The war room design seems inhuman. Like, I picked up on the fact that it's, like, this kind of brutal architecture school. Yeah. Uh, but then I found out it was essentially a concrete pyramid. I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. And the, the fact that you got this, like, giant ring light that's that's, that's the mm-hmm. only light in a room. And it's hard to see the person across from you. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, like, a really cool, like, this movie has three sets. It's got the war yeah. room. Uh, uh, the, the Captain McCluskey's office or General Ripper's office and the which B-52 was also set. the same sta- soundstage that they shot the hotel stuff in I guess oh really yeah. okay that makes sense that makes sense they, they I forgot they also had that on the location same stage, too. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I also couldn't find out is did K- Kubrick shoot all that military action or was that from another film dude that's got to be in my mind that's Kubrick after he's done Past Glory because that stuff had an intensity to it mm-hmm. that was like a man who's done war films mm-hmm. before. Right, right. Like, he was practiced at shooting war action. Mm-hmm. Do you think... The other thing is, what did you think about the, the actual bomber effects? They're bad. But, <laughs> they're really bad, and I don't know if they're bad intentionally or if they're just bad because it was 1964. I think... I mean, I thought it was funny in, like, a Tim Burton's Attack from Mars kind of way. Okay. That like, I mean, uh, clearly they had a, ch- and I, I think I looked this up. They had a that that he had uh, rented a B twenty nine, and he filmed it. They actually flew over the Arctic and filmed mm. it, and then yeah. they sped it up to make it look like the thing. And then they they right. just they just rear projected over this 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 model of the B fifty two. But I thought it was charming, in a way you can get away with in this kind of film. I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, it added to the it added to the farce. Like like yeah. this like like the the um, the scene of like Major Kong struggling to you know g- gain control of this crippled giant bomber uh-huh. is I mean all the inside stuff is shot with this this mastery and it looks so and then you go to the outside and it's just bobbling <laughs> you can actually see the strings in a couple of the scenes uh-huh. and just how like how uncompelling that action is I thought it's it's pretty it's pretty good okay in, in like a Flash Gordon kind of way. Uh, do we? Uh, so let me know when you're getting out of getting out of gas because we still got a canful in the, in the feedback. Okay, I still got oh, some Jack River stuff. To one other about. thing I wanted to like the what the other underrated sneaky moment is the first time that uh, the uh, McMuffin calls the Soviet premier mm-hmm. and he has that extended. Oh, you're fine. I'm fine. You can. Oh, it's fine. Everything's it's great to be fine. Like he was, even though they made it clear that seconds are of the essence. He's still fucking dragging his feet about talking yeah. about how, you know, how, how big of a fuck up that he's going to bring on his doorstep. <laughs> right. That's good. He's priming. He's priming him. The other thing that's, I, I guess, kind of frightening is that they're, uh, according to this film's lore, the U.S. Air Force actually made a lot of changes in their 
command and control systems as a direct result of this fucking movie. And I'm like, isn't that a little scary that a Hollywood farce is what led you to rethink some of these measures? Right. You, you clearly have not gamed this theory long enough. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Haven't run enough simulations on the whole whopper. Yeah. Like, you know, who knew you could just hire Stanley Kubrick to think about this for a while and come up with all the problems with your, (laughs) your fucking mutually assured destruction deterrent. Anyway, what you're going to, you're going to, I have some questions about Jack Ripper. So his, (sighs) his philosophy. So I know he's a madman. I know he's a lunatic and it doesn't have to make sense, but I'm trying to decipher what the hell he's talking about. Do you know that this fluoride thing was a real deal? Yes, I do. It's, it's, I don't want to say stupid because I can see why they might be worried about something like that. I think that. you can say it's stupid. I mean, certainly in retrospect, it's stupid. It's stupid in the same way that anti-vaxxers are stupid. With an added, like, world-ending political Oh, well, yeah, Jack theater, Ripper wanting stuff, to blow up like, the world in, you know, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. No, I mean with the fluoride stuff and the commies. Like I, I understand it. They're they're concerned about a thing and they're jumping to bad conclusions. And mm-hmm. but but Jack Ripper, uh, especially. So as I understand it, he he has sex with a woman and she and he feels drained and fatigued afterward, mm-hmm. and he views that as her stealing his essence. Right now. Somewhere along the way, it jumps a gap from there to fluoride, mm-hmm. and I, and I don't know how he makes that connection. Is it explained in the movie, or is he just a lunatic? I think he's like I, I you know, combined I, with like the public fear at the time. Yeah, I think he he ran with the conspiracy theory, and then decide then I, you know a man of his age. I my my reading of he is an old he's a man who's entering into male, whatever male menopause that stop keeps your dick from working okay uh he's got he's got impotent he's no longer can get it up in the in the presence of young virile women and his theory is that the soviets have stolen his uh have polluted his his <laughs> His okay. uh, precious bodily fluids with the via the fluoride, and, and I thought that yeah. they were because like you know it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. I thought that he was going to reveal that he has done nothing but drink, you know, grain alcohol. <laughs> right, he's sworn off of what he's like. Oh, I just I'm like oh, this is like he's gone mad from alcohol poisoning and all this other shit. Like he's like uh-huh. a, he's a fucking uh, essentially like a, 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 an addict. But then he's like, I only drink distilled water. But okay, hmm. but yeah, okay, yeah. I guess it doesn't quite make sense no i mean that's the thing he's just you have to fill in some blanks he doesn't explain it he's like like um fluoride thinking fluoride is is going to be a mind control substance um and not believe all the doctors and scientists are saying no no we are actually just making your your kids teeth stronger Uh um you know that that leap it's just another leap to like it like 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 if you believe that and you're in power and authority like he says i mean that's one of the frightening moments that he's like uh, I believe in a life after this one, and I yeah. like he's like he's doing this like he doesn't care if he dies much in the way like a suicide bomber doesn't because he's securing his eternal salvation by trying to save the soul of the country and the planet, right? Yeah, and he has the uh, means and the motive to to carry out this, and he's going to do it. Yep, that's uh, best laid plans, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay, what else you got? Mm. 
I don't know if I have anything else. I think I'm good. All right, let's start on the feedback because again, we've uh, we got a lot of it. This is a, a lot of people's. A lot, this, I mean, I feel like I need to elevate Doctor Strange Love higher in my estimation, but I feel that a lot. And then, like, I also struggle. It's like if if someone asks me what my top ten movies are, it's like how how the hell do you even to make that fucking list? Yeah. Because I've probably, in reality, got like 30 movies that I think are fucking awesome and superior. And I don't like it that when, like, oh, well, I saw There Will Be Blood, so now I got to move, uh, you know, Doctor Strangelove down the list a couple. Like, right. it's just like that. that it just, you either make the Pantheon or you don't. And mm-hmm. this, this movie fucking makes the Pantheon. It's so much. It's not a, it's thought provoking and fun, et cetera, et cetera. Let's get to the listeners. Uh, Julene says, Dr. Strangelove was a trippy movie I actually watched as part of an AP U.S. History junior year in high school, all the way back in 1997. I always meant to watch it as an adult since I believe the majority of it went over my head at the time. That was the only time I have ever seen it, but I thought it would be interesting to jot down a couple thoughts that made an impression before I rewatch it, as I've been saving that for the podcast. I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show around the same time as this movie, and I honestly don't remember which one of these had the wheelchair dude in the long stocking with heels. <laughs> it might have been both. It might have been both. I would be tempted to imagine it as Rocky Horror, but then I think the scene that may have led to a conversation about Hoover wearing ladies' clothing. My teacher was not shy about laying out that as ridiculous as it actually was. I saw the scene with the guy riding the nuke waving his hat in the air, and it was very mildly disturbing to me. I didn't get it. It was irritating. Every now and then, I puzzle over and try to figure out what the symbolism was. Out of the context, since I don't remember anything leading up to or immediately after that, I assume it was supposed to recognize America's cheerful disregard and enthusiasm for warfare. Because of the cowboy hat, but I'm looking forward to seeing that part again to put it in his place. Do you have any... Slim Slim has stopped worrying. He loves the bomb at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of a man in the throes of ecstasy and a guy riding a bull down to the ground. Yep. And uh, I think the title is an ironic one. I mean, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb is something you shouldn't do. Yeah, I think that's the president. That's the president's arc. At the end of the movie, he's like, ah, ten women. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's fair. Because he's the one, he, I think he's the only one in the room that seems, like, perturbed that this is happening. Everybody else, mm-hmm. other than the Soviet diplomat, of course. Everybody, and even yeah. him, at the end, got to get his picture of the big board. Uh-huh. His big board's about to be vaporized, and everyone's <laughs> right. going to live in mine. Oh, my God, the George C. Scott. What, what, what about the mine shaft gap? Like, yeah. God damn it. Um I think the tone of the movie bothered me since everyone is so bureaucratic about the concept of war. It seemed ludicrous to have the people who are sending soldiers to the death while raining death upon their enemies so bogged down in procedure over actual consequences. I don't know if that was an actual thing mm. in the movie. I just felt like the concept of war should be taken more seriously. That's the joke, JPEG. Like, yep. the I, and, and the thing is, that's, that's the instructive part that Kubrick set out to make a nuclear thriller. Mm-hmm. And... In researching it, this grim black humor came out um, because he read actual doctrine and actual accounts of near misses and things like that. And, you know, again, you watch 13 Days and you're like, you know, again, that's a dramatization. There wasn't like I, I, I don't know how much of that stuff was like based on like microphones and situation rooms and whatnot. But like yeah. all, all this doctrine and tactics is the real deal. And it is absurd. It only works because no one. Everyone assumes that rational people would not do something so fucking crazy and suicidal. Mm-hmm. You're you're trusting on the world in a collective sense 
to always be rational and cool-headed and not be willing to fucking roll the dice and get so... Even though individual people do that all the time. Sure. Yeah. You know? Uh, finally, I read Catch-22 a few years ago, and it resonated with the emotional state I had after watching Dr. Strangelove. The main character is crazy, everyone around him is crazy, and the system is the thing that's slowly driving them all insane. Except when he's having flashbacks to combat, then he's utterly sane and there's no mockery. Life and death is treated with the seriousness it warrants. Everything else about war is treated with contempt. I don't know if the reason I connected to is because it was something Dr. Strangelove had that I only got on an emotional level at the time or because I felt it was how war should be viewed in contrast to how I was interpreting it at the time. Uh, I think that there is something to that. And I think that's the decision to keep slim pickings in the dark is an interesting view of that duality. Like everything in the war room is farce. Everything happening in the actual bomber, the guys are doing the flying and dying deadly serious. Yeah. And and sober and 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 patriotic and and diligent and dutiful, where everything in the war room is passing the buck and making excuses and not wanting to rush to judgment and wanting to not assign blame. Right. So I think again, that's part of the the genius of what Kubrick was doing there with his his, his duality. He's he's making two films: the serious thriller that he left in with Slim Pickens. And the farce that the movie eventually came became in the war room and on the the military base. Yeah, and I think the contrast is is even starker because I view the the bomber stuff that happens as kind of part of the machine. Like these people are are making decisions that were preordained. It's it's almost like there's no decision to be made there. It's sort of the part of Plan R is the administrative doomsday device that America has at that point, and the the people who are <laughs> proceeding with this farce are in the war room you know like the machine itself is working perfectly as intended and the farce is happening with the people Mm -hmm. um so i i don't know that's how i felt about the bomber stuff um uh minoj wrote in and said i'm sure you will but i want you to comment on james earl jones and peter sellers best movies and where this ranks among them (laughs) that famous last scene with slim pickens riding the weapon We meet again playing at the end by Vera Lynn. How the whole movie is incredibly funny, but but tremendously scary at the same time, and how hard that combination is to nail would be much appreciated. I get, that's it's funny to say that it's a hard thing to nail when Kubrick claims that it came organically out of the, the doing this concept justice. Because I mean, I don't want to take anything away from what Kubrick did. Uh, he might have been an asshole, but he also fucking was a, a, a filmmaking savant. Mm. Um, but when the humor comes for free out of this super grim, like 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 if you just do a straight up analysis of this situation, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think it's 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 instructive that the the humorous aspects or the way this became a farce was an entirely organic, accidental process, right? Of trying to take it seriously. Uh-huh. And you hear that with like Dan the Carlin, like when he does the. If you, if you listen, I think everyone should. It's a five and a half hour long podcast. Uh, y'all seem like they're podcast junkies. Uh, it's free. Uh, Hardcore History Fifty Nine: Destroy of Worlds, where it's essentially a meditation on what happens when intelligent apes create a device that they themselves can't comprehend the power of. Mm-hmm. And it is absurd. It is. It is. It is. It is nutso. Um, James Earl Jones. I mean. It's Star Wars easily. I mean, you, is, not is, Star Wars, it, but... is Star Wars better than this film? Because that's the thing. Like, I feel like for both of these, this might be their best film. Because Peter Sellers had a long, storied career, and 
Um, I guess I did not know this, but he was in Lolita, which God damn it. I keep, I, I said last year is the year I want to finally watch Lolita, but like, hmm. I just can't see how that film yeah, is going to be good or something I'm going to enjoy watching, but I guess yeah. I'm going to have to eventually. Maybe I don't, but I mean, um, this is a great one. I really love the Pink Panther stuff, but it's not. It's like, not as at, on this level, quote unquote, good. And then if you this, like, like yeah. that's where I like the wire kept on the top of my list for so long because it's not only super awesome and good, but it's also quote unquote important. I don't know why I go to quote unquote because I, I, I I'm not being sarcastic. I think it's important. Like it's yeah. it, it, it's a show that can change your politics. I think this is a movie that will change your politics if you. Uh, and I'm not saying like hard turn from conservative to liberal or liberal to conservative, but like you got to take a more cautious, skeptical look at the world. Sure. You can't ever go into situations like this thinking that you're 100% right. And the other teams are 100% wrong. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, that's, that's the the message of this. Or even that, even that you have a hundred percent considered everything because like yeah your country right or wrong what your country came up with a system that's so fucked up and bro- broken but they didn't know it because they never got around to war gaming gaming plan r attack plan r right you know they were they were almost there they were they were at m it, it, it take you know they had they had 26 plans to evaluate they only they only got the 13th one it's you know like it's understand like like do you do you do you sh- at the graveyard of humanity do you just shrug your shoulders and like eh we tried <laughs> right like it doesn't uh, you got to do better it doesn't fucking matter you got to do better than that but no i think it's 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 both of these gentlemen's best films uh, in my opinion did you know yes i love to start a sentence out that way did you know that peter sellers and this often gets overlooked, played James Bond in a little movie called Casino Royale. Seriously? Fuck yeah, he did, and I've seen it. Is it good? Uh, it's funny. Uh, yeah. Really? <laughs> Am I blowing your He's mind? He's actually yeah. James Bond. He is James Bond 007, yes. Huh. Uh, and I find it interesting that five years after this movie, Dr. Strangelove, was made... Uh, he Peter Sellers starred in a movie called The Magic Christian, which is the book I think that caused Stanley Kubrick to go to Terry uh, Southern to help him write the script for Doctor mm-hmm. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was eventually converted into a movie or adapted into a movie, and Peter Sellers starred in it. Huh. So that's kind of neat. But I, so it was a real James Bond, or it wasn't a satire I, James Bond. Yes, because that's like saying is. Mike Myers played. J- I, 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 no, he plays the character James Bond. He's called 007. James Bond. James on Bond. Film. Yes, the Broccoli family was involved with this. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know, but it's called Casino Royale I, I, because I thought, like you know, like I knew the George. I thought you're gonna like yeah. It's, 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 it's like the first time I discovered like there's a George Lazenby or whatever James right, Bond, right? Like, or what, Roger shit? Moore, and, what? And and, mm-hmm. and and like you know, Peter Sellers isn't on this too. Okay, no, he is James Bond. Okay, uh, I've seen the movie. I remember it being kind of funny, but. Well, I mean, it was a very. I, I would imagine ago. most Peter Sellers movies are kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, Flash Gordon wrote in, writes in and says, "Hey, I'm the guy who sent you the Kubrick Collection book. Uh, thank you. I remember that. Yeah. Um, I just recently shelf here. Yeah. Well, actually, I. Uh, oh no, it's back. Yeah. You yeah, got it's it back here. I <laughs> took it home. I took it home for a couple weeks. Ah, cool. Uh, to to give it a perusal. Uh, it says it's obviously one of my favorite movies. Ironically, I think it's Kubrick's darkest subject matter in film, and also his only real comedy. I totally agree on the on the latter. I mean, oh yeah, Jesus Christ! It's his only like The comedy. Shining's dark as hell. Uh, Full Metal Jacket's dark as hell. Yeah. Past to Glory is not a comedy. I mean, <laughs> everybody gets upside down, crucified, or 
regular crucified at the end of Spartacus. Spoiler alert. Uh, There's it's, nothing it's pretty, funny in 2001. <laughs> it's, it's all pretty dark, but yeah, only real comedy for sure. Yes. And true Kubrickian style examines the dark heart of a complex topic through an incredibly satirical lens. I happened to be in London last week, so I visited the Kubrick archives again and read through a lot of his original scripts. That must be fun to just go happened there. To be and in like, London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what stood out to me was how much of Kubrick's notes were a meditation and research on strategic nuclear deterrence and <laughs> war combined with current affairs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, etc., He's renowned for going deep on a topic, and you can really tell it there and on the screen. Yeah, I do feel like you do have to have a certain command of a subject matter to make this sharp of a satire about it. You have to yeah. understand thermonuclear war and geopolitics. You have to thoroughly understand it to teach it, and then to lampoon it in a smart way, you got to do it, understand it that much more. Mm-hmm. I watched it last night, and the one thing that stood out after reading more analysis is the sardonic use of sexual imagery as a theme throughout. From the opening credits of the blatant uh, the B fifty twos blatantly screwing to the way the general staff in the war room react to Strange Love's post apocalypse proposal of ten women to one man ratio. Most obviously though, Jack the Ripper causing the whole thing because of his fear of losing his essence and precious bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. He ends uh, the world because he lost his mind with his libido, finishing off with Major Kong appropriately going out with his nuclear bomb between his legs. Um Yeah, no, I I guess that Contemporary audiences completely missed that, and there was some film professor that wrote an essay about, like, look at all this sexual imagery in a film, and there, Kubrick read him a handwritten note, thank you, like, th- finally, someone <laughs> fucking got it. Yeah. Uh, which I kind of think is, I don't know, is that a, a, a reflection of the times, that no one thought they'd be getting a smut film in their nuclear war satire? Maybe. I just think it's funny, like, all the people who didn't get the letters, like... Oh, there, there's blatantly uh, xenophobic stuff in here, and yeah. Kubrick never wrote him a letter. <laughs> like, of course, like on, on the internet, if you wrote everybody a letter who actually got the point of your movie, you'd just be doing nothing but writing letters. True, all True. the time, even if you're Kubrick. Yeah, because like, good lord, just ever. get five million people on that task. What happens? They figure it out. Yeah. Uh, Zach Z, the last time I saw this movie, actual nukes were far from my mind, and I thought it was great comedy. Rewatching it now with our current nuclear situation in North Korea, I see a lot more of the message in the movie, and it's a little less funny. Have current events impacted the way you saw the film this time around? Probably. It's hard because you're right. Like, I kind of stopped worrying about the bomb <laughs> in the mid You know, like, I, I went through several presidential administrations without thinking about being wiped out by thermonuclear and i'm not i'm yeah. not honestly worried about being wiped out by thermonuclear weapons at this point but the idea that there's this much atomic saber rattling is uh is is disturbing mm-hmm. and i don't think it, it 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 detracted from my enjoyment it's more of like a frustration that we continue as a society to struggle with the same issues and they're thorny. They're they're hard issues. They're they're, they're thorny yeah. and they're difficult issues. But but we can't get a consensus on, you know, like I said, it's not a controversial issue. Maybe on this podcast and with this audience, although I'm sure you know, I know we have people in our audience that are are very conservative. Um, but the fact that you can't get a like 40 years after the fact, uh, like a, a good yay nay about whether Vietnam was a good idea. The fact that people still argue about whether we should have gotten involved in Iraq. The fact that, you know, there's there's a both sides argument about whether the president should be tweeting about the size of a nuclear buttons. Like, it's it's pretty frustrating. 
pretty frustrating for me anyway. I just don't I'm see. Sure it's, I'm sure it's just as frustrating to be on the other side of the argument. But probably Which so, is yeah. why the argument still fucking happens. And that's the thing. I don't think it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle in any significant way. Oh, of course not. Because especially with the the type of government that we have, I think, we're, we're primed to bring in a new person every four to eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to happen. And some would that, say a constitutional requirement. Yeah, some might say that, uh, depending on whether or not they're president. <laughs> um, and... and at some point, you get the wrong person. Like that's that's the nuclear roulette that I feel like we're playing here. Is you mm. get the wrong person with the right access, and they might not consider the topic as as strongly. And these weapons aren't going away, and they're not becoming less of a threat. So, so you have that constant pressure. You have that constant issue, and I don't I don't see any kind of end to it. Mm. I mean, even if everyone comes together and says, yes, we will not do, we will not use nuclear weapons. And in fact, we're going to dismantle our entire uh, nuclear arsenal and we're going to make sure that none of us ever develop it again. That's good for the next four to eight years. Right. That's good until American policy changes. That's good until Russian policy changes or North Korean policy, like, or Chinese policy. Like, those issues are never going away ever. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. There is no solution to this other than for cooler heads to prevail. Always. Always. Forever. And if it, <laughs> if we mess up once, then... Then it's over. Like, that's the super scary thing about this is there is no way for it to go away. What if... Did we, I felt like we talked about this, or maybe this is uh, something I talked to Cecily last night, but do we, we have a... Is, was it on this podcast? Like, I can't even remember what I did uh, is this an hour a, and 30 Is this AI long. governance? Is that where we're going? <laughs> Well, that's the solution to everything. Just trust. Just just, <laughs> okay, just let sure. the fucking benevolent robots f- right. worry about it because we can trust them, right? Sure, of course. Right? We've yeah. debugged all they that. They have no there's, reason to wipe out. There's humanity. no Project R in their memory banks. <laughs> of um, not. There's an idea that's been circulated that I'm not even entirely unsure if it's a bad one. That what needs to happen eventually is this nuclear proliferation is a bad idea. Or nuclear non-proliferation is dumb. Everyone should get nukes. Okay. So then everyone can like like essentially makes invasions and warfare like like it, external invasions completely irrelevant. You just can't do it. Uh huh. And then the other side of that is what about like stuff like strategic missile defense? Like if you develop a technology that allows you to swing that 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 balance of terror back to the other side where you can start looking at n- military victories is that break to stalemate no and it temporary that... level temporarily levels the playing field is all it does right and once a, but the once idea a side... that like once a once a country enters the nuclear club they are that's the united states and the combined forces of nato or I don't know. Like, I don't know if, if Russia is going to eventually get together the the Eastern Bloc countries and and, and form a new Soviet Union. Yeah, or the, <laughs> I forget they had the the counterpart to NORAD. I can't or not NORAD uh, NATO. I can't remember what it oh. was, but uh, maybe it's Eastern Bloc. Uh, um, I don't know. Like, I like if every if every country like down to the Dominican Republic and and you know fucking uh, Madagascar. Uh, if everyone's got nukes, then except Australia, don't like, like international politics becomes very domestic. Like everyone's got to keep their own fucking backyard clean because nobody's going to come in and and depose or save or impose their will on anyone ever again. 
Because if you do, they just pop off a nuke, and then then what? That doesn't stop like, like the, mad that doesn't everyone. stop the madman factor. That doesn't stop the um, what's his name in this movie? Uh, uh, Jack Ripper. Yeah, Jack Ripper. That doesn't right. stop Jack Ripper from worse. setting off World War Three. Yeah, it makes it worse. Yet we've had a whole, we've had multiple nations that that are I'm 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 quite sure are full of of Jack the Rippers. Okay, on the, on the Soviet side, uh-huh. over in France, over in England. Over in Pakistan, over in India, here in the United States, got a couple Jack Jack the Rippers or two, uh, and and yet for sixty years we've we've been fine. For sixty years, right. uh, like I'm saying, that that's the problem with this is that threat does not go away ever, hmm. right? I mean, you can't uninvent this technology. I mean, what and you if you can try do, to dismantle it, you, someone what, else can reinvent it. I guess what you can do is you can. Uh, like the super, the nuclear superpowers could agree to disarm down to like I don't know a dozen warheads, and uh-huh. then with spy technology being what it is, like you couldn't rebuild that capability in secret. Hmm. So then you could have like I guess the whole if anyone ever tries, the whole world turns against them, and you know then you can't you're you're back to like conventional force. But I I don't know if that's good because like. We stopped having world wars and started having smaller regional proxy conflicts, which, why terrible, are not 40 million dead terrible. <laughs> I think we're just queuing up the casualties uh, yeah. in a perverse way. I don't know. Like, I, I, it, I, it's possible. Oh, it's possible that we'll prevail. Because if I put on my optimism and, hat, I yeah. also like, I, I continually think, like, yes, we're so close to fucking everything up, but we're also really close to having like, almost a utopia. Like, if, we can, yeah. if, if we can chuckle fuck our way through the next hundred years, <laughs> we might have a, a utopia just in time for the asteroid to come wipe us out. But you know, like, if we can just get through this, this 21st century right. and, and global warming doesn't get away from us and global nuclear war doesn't get away from us and, or, or, or the ice caps melt and unleash some god-awful flesh-eating virus that kills us all. Like, like we, we get real, like, like unprecedented Star Trek-style human progress to be made if we can just get through that. Because like I think the stalemate could be broken. There's there's probably ways you could do it with technology and and also if like if if you move past a a zero sum game, limited resources, limited energy game, then that that de-stresses everything. Yeah. Like if everybody's fat and happy in their country and and warm and well fed, then 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 why do you want to invade? Why do you want to you know? Sure. I, I don't know, but we are. It's it's one of those too close <laughs> to call things. Yeah, it's life interesting. It's, it's a scary and <laughs> interesting in the sense of interesting times. But I mean, I, I I guess um, that's what I would say. I it's like I don't know if I said that. I know I said it in lunch. I'm not sure if I said it on this podcast. But the what my the end of my latest conversation I had with my son, which was on the way to school today. <laughs> this is this is Friday, <laughs> January fifth. If in case you're wondering, I said. Does your dad like, – like, like you go home and the lights are on and the heat's working and there's food on the table, right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, that's because your dad's an adult and I, I take care of my business. And your mom mm-hmm. takes care of your business, your stepmom. And this whole country is full of moms and dads that can't take care of their business. And the whole world's full of those adults that take care of their business. And you got to trust us as adults to handle the business. And then one day it's going to be your turn to handle business. And I guess all the adults listen to this podcast, let's fucking handle our business. <laughs> sure. Let's 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 keep this yeah. let's keep this streak going. Mm-hmm. Can we fucking agree to do that? Okay, that's 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 how I'd like to end this podcast. 
Uh, thank you to everyone that commissioned this podcast, including uh, our friend Jenny from the Breaking Bad Fan Fest, uh, Juline, Manoj, Flash Gordon, Anthony, uh, Leap Lizard, Hyro Protagonist 2002, Tingudu, Don M, Zach Z, Sean Arn, Alex K. Thanks for commissions. Thanks for your support. Thanks for the insightful feedback. Thanks for forcing me to watch one of the best films of all time. Yeah, it's a real shame. Uh, we'll be back with another one real soon. Yeah. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.